All right, this morning, part 37 in our study of law and gospel, part 37. Doesn't feel like we've been working on it that long, but part 37. All right, does anybody remember what thesis we're on? Are we still on five? Did we finish five? All right, anybody know? Please tell me. Someone knows. Thank you. Good. All right. Someone knows. All right. Good. Someone knows. All right. Someone knows. All right. This is number six. I'm not going to do any review on the end of five. I'm not going to do anything like that. It's all online, so you can go listen. But here we go. Part 37. This is number six. Yeah, I'm losing my voice. This is number six. Here we go. Now, um, in... Thesis number five, that was the, the way the book is out, kind of structured. Starting in thesis five, it's going to give us every manner in which it's going to start giving us different ways in which law and gospel is either messed up or confounded or commingled in some way, shape, or form. In thesis five, the first manner of confounding law and gospel was one of the most easily recognized. Does anybody remember the most easily recognized way in which law and gospel is confounded? We spent a long time on this one. No, it should be fine. It should be fine. Be fine. I can check and see why the volume is down. There we go. That should be better. Okay, there we go. This is number five. Everybody remember? This is the most easily recognized one. This is the one that I said everyone has to know. This is the simple one, the easy one, because they only get more complicated from this point forward. Yes? Okay, this, go, this one dates back to the Council of Trent, right? Where they would say that we are saved by grace. However, when they say that we're saved by grace apart from works, what are they referencing? The works of the, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament law, but that Christ is a new lawgiver, and therefore we have to obey the New Testament law, or his law, in order to be saved. Remember, that that was a very big one. We spent a long time working on that one. If you don't remember that one, you definitely need to go back and listen, because if you don't get the first one right, there's really no point in moving forward. This, this one led us all the way to Jeremiah 31. Remember that? The whole discussion on Jeremiah 31 and the New Covenant and all of the discussions about that. All of that discussion was super, super important. I don't have time to go back on all of that, but please remember that one. All right, thesis number six. Thesis number six. Here we go. Thinking caps on? Maybe. Maybe. I'm getting a little worried here, right? All right, thesis number six. In the second place, the word of God is not rightly divided when the law is not preached in its full sternness and the gospel not in its full sweetness. When on the contrary, gospel elements are mingled with the law and law elements with the gospel. Right? So this one really focuses on how we present or preach either one. When we preach law, it must be given its full what, according to this thesis? Sternness. Meaning what? What does that mean? Okay. What is, what is the idea of sternness? You can look up the definition if you need to. What is the idea of being stern or sternness? Firm. Okay. All right, fire and brimstone. Okay. I, 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 now, okay, that's good that you mentioned it that way. Because I think, I think somehow we may perceive it as fire and brimstone, but I want to make sure we, we see it this way. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Go to the Sermon on the Mount. Because remember, I talk about this sermon always being so obliterated and misapplied and preached incorrectly in the church that it's, it's pretty bad the way it's handled. All right. 
Okay, go to Matthew chapter 5. We'll go to verse 43. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. This is a good example. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. We could take anything in the entire sermon. But this is, uh, I think, the best example. All right? Here we go. Um, we'll, go, we'll go to Matthew 5, 38, because 38 to 48 is where this happens all the time. Matthew 5, 38 to 48. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. If a man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Whoever will compel thee to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemy, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard any preaching on the, the, that section, but almost immediately what occurs when people preach this section. Well, it means this, but it doesn't mean, and then we'll give 15 things that it doesn't include, and you don't have to do this, you don't have to turn the cheek in this way, and you can love your enemy, but you can still kill your enemy under this situation, and this situation, and this situation, and if someone asks of you, you can say no in this situation, and this situation, and this situation, and we start saying all the ways in which it doesn't apply. Now, the minute we do that, what are we doing? We're not preaching its full sternness. But when you preach it in its full sternness, what will people almost immediately say? No, they'll say that's impossible. That Jesus can't mean that if this happens, that I'm supposed to love my enemy. No, 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 no. I will defend myself or I will do this and I will do this and I will do... Because we will say, there's no way Jesus meant that. He could not possibly mean that. That makes absolutely no sense. So then we water it down so it becomes what? what? Okay, acceptable. Another word? Doable. That we can do it. Because we don't view that section, that we don't view the Sermon on the Mount as law. Right? It's like it's not preached as law. It's kind of preached as, I mean, we preach it like law, but we water it down so that we believe it's manageable. But when, remember, whenever we see God's law in Scripture, what's the almost immediate thing we have to know about it? Everyone should remember this. We're incapable. We're incapable. Right, if you don't remember anything else today, whenever you read the Bible and you see the law, there are, the Bible's filled with laws, Yes? Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Immediately when you see that, what should be your like absolute first impression and conclusion? It is impossible for me to obey that. Because obedience to the law requires what? Everyone should know this by now because we've repeated it like 150 times. It requires personal, perfect, exact, entire... And perpetual obedience. We always fall short in some way, shape, or form. We, we may, we, even we may appear to obey it externally, but we fail internally, right? We may externally, you may convince everyone that you love your enemy, but internally, you want them dead. Well, guess what? Did you fulfill the law? No. Externally, you may turn the other cheek, where inside, you broke their neck. Did you fulfill the law? No. So we fall short over and over and over and over and over and over and over. But it's always preached in such a way saying, here's what Jesus wants us to do, but it doesn't mean this, 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 so that there's at least the idea that we can do what? That we can fulfill it. In fact, typically the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, I did, it's all in the podcast, I reviewed hours and hours and hours of preaching from a church in Iowa where basically they, they went with the same kind of way of handling the Sermon on the Mount that most churches handle it. How do you know you're saved? Your obedience to the Sermon on the Mount. 
which then prove, according to them, they, that they look at the Sermon on the Mount as something that you can do what? You can do it. You can accomplish it. But that's insane. Because what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, immediately when I read be perfect, what should I know? I can't do it. So then my interpretation of the law has to be, wait, wait, wait. This does what? Just read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Read it about 10 times. If you're even halfway honest with yourself, your conclusion should be, I can't do it. I fell, I fell, I fell, I fell, I fall short, I fall short, I fall short, I fall short. Therefore, I am incapable. I am condemned. So what is my only hope? I need someone to do it for me, right? That was, my, that was my perspective in math class. I need someone to do this for me, right? So I would find the girls who could and date them, right? Because that's, that was my prerequisite for dating, right? Are you good at math? Okay, good. We're good to go, all right? That's it. That was my only requirement, okay? Anything else did not matter because I needed to get through math because I hated math. I needed someone to do it. For me, all right? Well, when you read the Bible, that's the case. You say, I need someone who will do this for me, and there's only one person who did it for you perfectly, and that is Christ. By faith, what happens? This is not the best illustration, but this will make sense. By faith, his grade becomes your grade. All right? So you pass based off what he does for you. That's the whole point of Christianity, is that we can't, he did, by faith, his action becomes, uh, is accredited to me. But so, we, we, we do, do you see the theological damage you do when you water down the law? Right, so then, law, then Christianity becomes what? A never-ending pursuit of attempting to do that which is right. Making it simply a system of morality or a system of works. We we reduce Christianity to a moral system. It's not a moral system. It's It's a system of showing us we can't, but Christ did. Does that make Does that make sense? So, but we have a tendency to do this. I mean, just, you don't believe me, just get online, start listening to sermons who, who preach these things. I mean, it'll be like, well, okay, well, wait a bit. what about this? Well, what about this? Well, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. When it talks about laying up treasures in heaven, right? Or seek first the kingdom of God. Remember how Jesus handled the law when the rich young ruler came to him? Hey, what do I have to do to be saved? Keep the law? And he's like, I've done all of this. And he's like, oh, you have? Okay, great. Go sell Everything you have and give it to the poor. Because you're supposed to do what? Love your neighbor as yourself and seek first the kingdom of God and not store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. Now, we preach that, but we water it down saying, oh, you don't have to do this or you don't have to do that. You don't have to do this. Did Jesus water it down? No, he gave the full sternness of it. And when the guy walked away, did Jesus say, hey, come back, come back. All you need to do is say a prayer. All you need to do. No, he wanted him to fill the full weight of the law. And what the person should have done is, I can't do this. But we water it down. I do not understand our reasoning for why. I know the reasoning for watering it down because we want to believe that we can do it. Well, you can do it if, if uh, seeking first the kingdom of God means, I don't know, just going to church on Sunday. Right? Loving your neighbor as yourself just means, I don't know, yeah, I mean, like, well, like, we water it down, but when you go to what Jesus seems, because, I mean, again, just start with Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who does what? Meditates on God's word. Anybody ever pull that off? I will say, well, I mean, I have my morning devotional time. I think it requiring a little bit. Pray without... I can go on and on and on and on. And, and we just water it down, 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 until everyone pats themselves on the back and says, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. We, it, it 
just the big sins. But it's kind of interesting. If the school system, in a sense, dumbs down education, lower standards, make it simple, usually parents will get upset. They're ruining the next generation. Back in my day, we made it harder, right? Whatever the case, you know, older people say. Okay, but the reality is we do the same thing in the church. We want to dumb it down. But it's not supposed to because whose law is it? God's law. I mean, every parent in here would, would probably be upset if you gave a rule and then, the kids, and then the kids got together and came back and said, well, you know, I know this is the rule, but you didn't really mean it this way because that's just ridiculous and we know you're not, you wouldn't think that way. So we're going to do this. You'd be like, no, no, that was the rule. Yeah, but we are interpreting your rule differently. We don't get to change the rule. I mean, I would love to change all, all, every rule in the Bible, yes? Okay, maybe the rest of you weren't. Okay, I, I would. Because I look at them like, I can't do this. I can't. I, how, do I, how do I pull this? How do I do this? How do I do this? I mean, just, there's just so many things in Matthew 5 to 7. I mean, so many things. Uh, it's like, I mean, everyone is condemned by it. So we cannot water it down. So does everybody understand now about not preaching it in its full sternness? It's when you do what? You take the law, you lessen the requirements of the law so that everyone feels that they can do it. We can't do that. We all have to be confronted that we cannot do it, that we cannot, that we cannot, that we cannot, that we cannot. Does that make sense? All right, so that is, that is how we preach it. We don't preach it in its full sternness. Now, what does it mean in preaching the gospel in its full sweetness? That's what it means to not preach the law in its full sternness. What would, what would be an example of not preaching the gospel in its full sweetness? What would be an example of not preaching the gospel in its full sweetness? Okay. That would, be, that would really destroy it, right? When you say, you're saved if, or you're saved, but if you don't do A, B, C, D, E, then you're not saved. What did we just turn the gospel into? Law. We just turned the gospel. It, it, is, it is so weird how Christianity works. On one hand, we spend all the time lessening the law so that we all feel that we could do it. And then we turn right around when we preach the gospel and say, you're saved, but if you don't do this, 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 and this, you're probably not saved, but you're still saved by grace apart from works. But if you don't do the works, then you're not really saved, so you're saved by works. That destroys it. So on one hand, we remove the sternness of the law and we completely obliterate the sweetness of the gospel. It's like the sweetness of the gospel lasts how long for Christians? About three seconds. It's that initial salvation, right? right? It, the, the sweetness of the gospel is great for people who are, who are like me. If you're raised in a Christian home, it's not sweet. If you're raised like I was, it's great, right? Because I come walking into the church, boom, I'm a mess, right? All the things, I mean, I won't go through all the things that I did. I mean, I'm a mess. And then I get to hear what? I'm forgiven. And I'm like, okay, wait, that's awesome. This is the greatest thing ever. Now, it lasts only for about how long? Because immediately it turns into, well, if you're really saved, you wouldn't do this, 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 you wouldn't do this. And I'm like, wait a minute, what just happened? I heard that if I believe in Jesus, I'm saved. And then five seconds later, they're handing me a book this size going, here's all the do's and don'ts. You can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And it's one thing to say, here's what God requires. It's another thing to say, if you're not doing this right, you are probably not saved. They just took what from the gospel. It's not sweet anymore. It just became an introduction into what? A new system of morality. And basically, I'm on probation, and I don't really know I'm saved until I've proven that I keep it enough. So at any moment, I could prove what? that I'm not saved. Do you see how that destroys the gospel? 
If I say, look, you do this, this, and this, you prove you're saved, at any point you may start doing the wrong things and prove that you're not saved. Therefore, and not only are you not saved, they would say that you were never saved. So then you're like, well, how do I even know that I'm saved? Well, you don't really know you're saved until you get to the end to see if you proved that you were ever saved. That's not sweet. That's just a probationary period of time, which I have to try to prove it based off what? My actions. And if I have to prove my salvation based off my actions, then that means whose actions were I not saved by? Christ's actions, which destroys the entire gospel. So, do, do, so does everybody understand how we destroy the sternness? We destroy the sternness by going to something like the Sermon on the Mount and then saying what? We water it down, we water it down, we water it down until it, we feel like it's manageable. Okay? That's, that's, that's not preaching the law in its full sternness. How do we take away the sweetness of the gospel? Saying that you're saved by the gospel, however, you have to do 15 things in order to prove that you are saved, and if you don't do those things, you were probably never saved. So now the gospel is not sweet, the law is not stern, and guess what we've done? Obliterated the proper distinction between law and gospel. And that's been going on in the evangelical world throughout most of church history. And nobody talks about this problem. This is the biggest problem facing the church versus all the other things people say is facing the church. All right? So, So basically what happens, gospel elements are mingled with the law and law elements with the gospel. You take the two things and you merge them together. And what do you get? A mutated, hybrid monster that has that is of no value to anyone theologically. You cannot merge the two together. All right, that's the thesis. So everybody has thesis number six, yes? How would you simply put thesis number six? Since I forgot thesis number five, I'm going to make sure nobody forgets thesis number six, okay? How would you simplify thesis number six? Give me a, a simple way of saying it. Yeah, or a simple way of saying is we must preach the full sternness of the law and the full sweetness of the gospel. To fail to do that mingles the two together, which we cannot do that. But everybody understands those examples, right? Okay. All right, I may, I may have to, I may have to uh, on the podcast, I may have to do some sermon reviews just to show you how this happens constantly in sermons everywhere especially the uh, watering down the, the law. It's ridiculous. Listen to any sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. They'll merely basically say, you can do this, and then they'll water it down to make sure that you can. And it's, it's crazy. All right. And remember, that's, and just so that you know, that's one of my, has been some of my biggest problems within Christianity is the Sermon on the Mount. Because when I was a teenager reading the Sermon on the Mount, I'm like, well... What does that look like? I'm supposed to love my enemy? I'm supposed to turn the other cheek? Like, I took that as serious. And everybody's like, no, 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 it doesn't mean that. No, 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 it doesn't mean that. The whole thing about marriage and divorce and remarriage. I mean, if you, if you remember, it was my, uh, one of the, I went to a lot of different Bible colleges, but the Bible Institute that I attended in Lawton, Oklahoma, remember what he told me to do to the Sermon on the Mount. The section about uh, marriage and divorce. And adultery, he told me to rip it out of my Bible because there was no point, because no, no church ever practices it. And that's, that was an independent fundamental, like, believe the Bible is the word of God. But he knew, he under, and what he was trying to demonstrate was, hey, you preach the right teaching about, because the Bible would say that if you get married and you get divorced and you get remarried, in many cases, that places you in what kind of a relationship? Adultery. Do those people get treated as adulterers in church? Now, so just think about just think about how weird this can play itself out. Now, Christians always get mad when I say this, but we just have to face the reality because it fits this thesis, right? You could have someone sitting in this pew. They were married. They got divorced. They got remarried. So they are committing adultery, depending on how it all works out biblically. They're committing adultery. You could have someone sitting back here who end up committing adultery, right? 
Guess what happens to the person who's committing adult, who commits adultery? They'll possibly be church disciplined while you have someone here who's committing adultery all the time and they'll never get church disciplined. How do we justify that? So we take the teaching on law, on, on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and what do we do with it? Well, there's no way it could mean that. We lessen it, yes? And, and Jesus, I mean, those words that he says are somewhat frightening, yes? Matthew 5, uh, verse 30 31. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let me give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, please note it says for the cause of fornication, right? Which this puts it in the betrothment period, but this gets to a whole issue. Causeth her to commit adultery. And whoever shall marry her that is divorce. What does it say? Commits adultery. Puts you in an awkward position. Yes? So in the Protestant world, we've come, we've watered that down and say, well, no, 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 there's an exception here, there's an exception here. Oh, well, you know, Jesus is forgiving, and we'll find a hundred ways to get around it. Well, at the same time, someone else involved in a sexual sin will be what? Discipline. How can, how can that system work within the church? And so what do we feel we have to do? we got to water it down because that's going to offend a lot of people. A lot of people are going to be condemned all day, every day by that. And we end up looking really confused and hypocritical about it. Now, the Catholic Church, they still maintain at least some level of, of, of common sense on it, right? What does the Catholic Church call for that to happen in that situation? No, they have to, be, they have to live a celibate life. They're married, but they have to be celibate, or they're committing adultery. So therefore, they're committing a mortal sin. Therefore, they are no longer in a state of grace, meaning they won't go to purgatory. They will go to hell. Now, does the average Catholic practice that? No, but that's in the, it's the Catholic teaching, but that's a whole different story, right? And we would say that that, and the Protestant world would act like that that's what? That's horrible. Why would they say that? That's horrible. Because Jesus couldn't admit that. Well, why can he, why when this, how come he can mean it, not mean it here, but in a different situation, he means it. Because if you're in the other situation, you can say, well, no, no, Jesus didn't mean it for me either. And so sooner or later, then everyone who's involved in any kind of sexual sin could say what? He didn't mean it. It doesn't apply. So then everyone would be what? Innocent. I'm saying that's just one section. As soon as anyone preaches that section, well, immediately what does the sermon turns into? Okay, well now, this is a sensitive subject. Okay, we got to be very careful. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to hurt anyone's feelings because we know some people have found themselves in this situation. But just know that God is a merciful God. So it, you're okay. Don't worry about it. You're not in sin. And then, but then someone else, it'll be like, you're in sin. And you're like, well, wait, what about them? It doesn't count. How do we, you see how arbitrary that becomes? That becomes very subjective, does it not? And then not only does it become subjective, who gets to determine who who it applies to? The church. Well, that's messed up. If the church gets to decide, then what could you say as an individual? Why can't I decide? So, what is that doing? That's taking away what? The sternness of it. Because, let's, look, if you're, if you're married, and, and, or divorce, div- married, divorced, and remarried, look, by, listen, that may be an issue that makes you uncomfortable. The whole sermon makes me uncomfortable. Yes? If a man looks at a woman with lust, he is guilty of... Adultery. So, I mean, like the, the, the before the Sermon on the Mount is over, everyone is condemned. Everyone is condemned. So, if you're going to water it down in one part, then you have to water it down where? The whole thing, and then therefore it becomes what? Meaningless. And that's what it's become. It's become completely meaningless. That's taking away the sternness of it. It's supposed to be stern. In fact, what are you supposed to feel by the time you get to the end of it? 
You're supposed to be destroyed. You're supposed to be like, this is, this, I, no way, this is not right. I can, nobody can do that. That's what you're, you're supposed to feel helpless. But we've taken away that helpless feeling from it. That takes away the sternness. And once you take away the sternness, then the gospel immediately loses its what? It's sweetness because it's sweet because it, it, it's my only hope. Yes? It's my only hope. All right. Oh, we're going to run out of time. All right. That's okay. Let's go back to, I want to make sure. So everybody understands the thesis, right? Okay. What is it? Give me some, someone say a simple way of remembering it. A mingling of the two. Yes, we can. We so what? What's our job? Do not water down the gospel. Okay, and preach the full sternness of the law, or preach the full sternness of the law. Don't water down either. However you want to word it, whatever. However you will remember it. That's all I care about. Right? We cannot remove the sternness of the law. We cannot. Now, what a lot of people think is when you don't remove the sternness of the law. Immediately someone said, oh, so you're saying you keep the law? No, that's the whole point. No one does, including you and including me and including every other preacher who's ever preached it, including every other Christian who's ever read it. Who's the only person who's ever kept it? Christ. And if he didn't keep it, what would be, uh, what would be our, our situation currently? We, we, we would be still under the law. We would still be condemned. How are we no longer under the law? Because we are in Christ. So, in that sense, we're not under it, but we fulfill it. How do we fulfill the law? In him. In him. In him. Not meaning that he gives me the power to keep it, but he's kept it for me. All right. That 40-something minutes was all just just reading the thesis. Now we've got to work through the chapter on it, all right? Everybody ready? Everybody think we're good there? All right, I'm, we're going to find out. The commingling of both doctrines occurs when gospel elements are mingled with the law and vice versa. Let's, let us investigate what Scripture says regarding this matter. To begin with, what does it say concerning the law? How does it show that we must not mingle any e- evangelical ingredient into the law? So what they are worried about is it will take an evangelical or gospel element and moving it where? Over to the law. So they may look at this a slightly different way than I've explained it, but that's okay because I never follow any. I always try to give it our own way and then we'll use it as a supplement. So let's see where they're going to go. They're going to go to the book of Galatians. Let's go to the book of Galatians. They're going to go to the book of Galatians which is always a fun book. All right? The book of Galatians. Now, book of Galatians was written to what church? Church at Galatia, right? What was the issue? Okay, people had come into the church. Sometimes we refer to them as Judaizers. And what were they trying to get the church to do? Hey, you're not saved unless you fulfill the Old Testament law. They were trying to bring back the law. So there's a a battle here within the church, right? And there's always this battle. Now there, it's directly related to Judaism. But let's remember, this battle continues every day in every church. What's the battle? The, the, The battle of the Christian life is always trying to understand what is our relationship to the moral law found in the Bible? What is our relationship to it? Right? What is our relationship to it? And there's, there's only a couple of basic theories, right? Does everyone agree when you read the Bible, there's a lot of thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that? There's so many of them. So many. So many. Hundreds and hundreds. Yes? Okay. Now, it's funny because on one hand, in the evangelical world, we'll say something like this. It's not about rules. It's about a relationship. Oh, does that sound so good? That sounds so good, right? But give me a break. Okay, there's a million rules there. Okay, a million rules. All right, so what are the, so let's just go through this. In church history, what are the different theories about you as a believer, your relationship to the rules or your relationship to the law? What are the different ways of approaching this throughout church history? All right, what's the first way? 
your relationship to the law throughout church history. Let's go through the first way. This is a dominant way. That's been, it's shown up in all different elements of church history over and over and over. No, your uh, Christian's relationship to the law. What's the first way, a first system that was very prominent throughout church history? Catholics get it, are usually the ones who get blamed for holding on to it. Works are required for salvation. Okay, it's a works-based system. This is a very common way throughout church history, yes? If you, that your relationship to the law is you must keep it in order to be saved. Right? This is this dominant throughout church history, yes? It's shown up over and 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 over again, has it not? Okay, why do you think that's such a dominant way? Why do you think that system is so prominent throughout church history? Well, remember, remember, we've talked about this now like a hundred times in this series so far. We are, we are by nature what? Law-based. Thank you. We are by nature law-based. And because we're by nature law-based, we think what God offers is wonderful and great. We think it's wonderful that Jesus died on the cross. We think forgiveness is awesome. Heaven is awesome. But there's something inside of us that says, I must do something to earn it, to get it. To keep it, yes? Okay, so so we have to do something in order to get it. So the first system that tries to understand our relationship to the law teaches us that we are saved by works, right? What's the second way of understanding that throughout church history? Our relationship to the law as believers. First, you have to do it in order to get it. What would be a second prominent way throughout all? It's still present within the church today. There we go. We have, to, we have to keep the law in order to keep our salvation, or we can lose our salvation. Plenty of churches in this area believe that, right? Churches of Christ believe you can lose your salvation. Lutherans believe you can lose your salvation. Many charismatic churches, like the Assemblies of God, believe you can lose your salvation. It's a, it's a prominent way. Yes, it's a prominent way. I got into a bunch of arguments with charismatics who tried to use Hebrews 11 the heroes of the faith, to argue to me that none of them were saved because they all lost their salvation. <laughs> so the heroes of the faith all lost their salvation. I, I didn't even know what to say. I was like... No, I, well, I'd never heard such a wild argument. I was just like looking, I'm like, what is... I'm just leaving now because I don't know what you guys are even talking about. Like, so nobody in the... So there's an entire chapter about the heroes of the faith and all of them went to hell. I'm like, what a wacky chapter that is. Okay, Like, I'd never even heard anything like that. I'm like, that's why I can't talk to charismatics because I'm like, I don't even know what you guys are talking about. All right, So that's the most bizarre thing I'd ever seen. So the, what's the first way that tells us your relationship to the law? It is what? Do it in order to get saved. Right? Everybody knows that one, Yes? Second, do it in order to stay saved. All right, so far, so good. All right, what is a third idea that about your relationship to the law within the Christian world? And most of your Christian friends believe the third one. Do what? There you go. You got to keep it to prove you're saved, which is really just a variation of the other two. It's not really that much difference, right? Oh, what are we doing there? We're playing a semantics game, yes? You see how, the, you see how we're playing a little game? Well, we're not saying you have to do it in order to get saved. We're not saying you can lose your salvation. We're just saying you have to do it in order to prove you're saved, which means I have to do it to be saved, and it also means I have to do it in order to Say, it's just say, it's just changing the tense a little bit to try to make us feel better. Most all of your Christian friends, no matter what church they go to, they believe the third one. You may be, be here and believe the third one. And that's great if you believe the third one. But if the law is going to prove you're saved, what do you have to do in order to prove you're saved? Keep the law. And how well do you have to keep it? Perfectly. Entirely, exactly, perpetually. But what do we come along and do? We water it down 
so that we can do it. See, it's just ridiculous. All right, what's the fourth relationship? Us to the law. Now, this one is much more in the minority. Sadly, it's the minority today. There's all, you're, you're, you're running out of options. There's only one left. There we go. Our relationship to the law is that it's fulfilled by Christ for us. That we're no longer under it. Now, does that mean we don't have to worry about it? No, we worry about it, but we just know we can't keep it. And Christ is the only way in which it is fulfilled. That is, that is like church history right here. You just, you just went through a journey through entire church history. And I can go at any point in church history and see, and you can see which one of those ways of thinking was dominant. It's been, this has been played out throughout church history. And why has it been played out through church history? Because someone said it, I don't remember who, when you read the Bible, it's fulfilled with what? All these rules. And when you find all of those rules, you've got to figure out how do they apply to me? What does it mean for me today? Right now. So guess what? At the church of Galatia, they were already having this problem, Yes. What's their relationship to the law? All right, Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 11. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. And what do we read? But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith, that's Galatians 3.11. Galatians 3.11. Right? You, everybody understands the significance of that phrase, the just shall live by faith? Right? Everybody understands the significance of that? Where else is that phrase used? Okay, very... And Romans, right? Anybody find where it's found in Romans? Now, if you, if you don't know this, then you cannot refer to yourself as a Reformed Christian. You're just, you're, you're clearly not Reformed. You're Catholic, okay? Right? This, the whole Protestant Reformation hinges on this. 117, thank you, right? right? Like the, the, the key verse of the entire Protestant Reformation, what does it say? Yeah, just, you have to read the whole verse. Please note, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith, right? Now, he's quoting from, he's quoting from the Old Testament. If you, Paul is referencing the Old Testament there, so we can go back to uh, where it's referenced in the Old Testament. We won't, I won't take you through the whole thing. Everybody should know this, because this is like, this is the whole Protestant Reformation, right? Okay, so, the just shall live by faith, or the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. Let me make sure we understand how this works, right? Does God, is God, does God have righteous demands? Yes. How do we meet those righteous demands? We cannot within ourselves. Those righteous demands are met by faith because we put our faith in Christ and his righteousness and his obedience is done what? Accredited to my account, right? It's accredited to my account. They are, again, I'll keep using this illustration. I know it's not perfect, but I walk into math class, right? I walk into math class. The teacher has this weird standard that I have to get the answers right. I don't know what kind of nonsense that is, but the teacher says, here's the right answer, and the wrong answer gets what? That very traumatizing X mark that's usually in red ink. I don't know why they do that. That's traumatizing and psychologically damaging, right? I'm still going to counseling for it, right? And they put a big X. And then they'll even do this weird thing. They'll put a number on the top of your paper that says something like, I don't know, a zero, right? Which is kind of embarrassing, yes? Okay, that's all horrible. That's all horrible. And for some reason, I could never meet said standard because math is evil. Right? So when the teacher says bad things about like, hey, you get a zero, I'm like, no, I don't. No, I don't. And then just look over at my girlfriend. Hey, babe, go up there. Show them the paper. I'm like, that's my grade right there. It's a hundred. I have a hundred in her, Right? For some reason, that never worked. The teacher, for some reason, did not. And I said, you don't understand the doctrine of imputation. 
You're lost. If my teacher was saved, she would have said, that's a beautiful picture of the doctrine of imputation. You get an A. But it did not work that way because she was a heathen. She was lost. She was not saved, right? But that's exactly what happens. God gives the, the, what's the standard? Perfection. By faith, whose perfection becomes mine? Christ. So the law says, here's what's demanded, and guess what is provided? Perfect obedience. By faith. So the just shall live by faith. Live by faith. In other words, we're not just saved by it. We live by it. Because that's how we are, that's how come we will always be saved. We cannot lose our salvation. Because what would be required for me to lose my salvation? Christ's obedience would have to be thrown out. Does that make, does that kind of work? Does that help you understand it? Alright, so read Galatians 3.11 one more time. Oh, I hate the clock. Okay. But that no man is justified by the law on the side of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. How do we know that no man is justified by the law? Because we live the justice lives by faith. Does it say we live by obedience? No, we live by faith. What does the next verse say? And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall... Live in them. If, in other words, here's your thing. If you want to be justified by the law, then what do you have to do? You've got to live in them. In other words, it's no longer faith. Right? If you're going to be justified by the law, who cares about faith? What do you need to worry about? Obedience. Does anybody understand that? If the just lives by faith, then what's the focus? On faith. If you, fo- if you don't focus on uh, faith, you focus on the law, then it's no longer faith, it's by obedience. So it's either faith or obedience. Faith or obedience. My salvation is not based off obedience, it's based off faith. Now if you want to say, well, there is an obedience required, I agree. But whose obedience? Christ's obedience. That is given to me by Faith, all right? Everybody understand this? I mean, this is, like, this is like Christianity 101. The problem is it's no longer Christianity 101 because the church at large has completely abandoned this idea and has abandoned this teaching, which sadly has done great harm. All right? Now, I'm just going to read this paragraph, and then we're going to have to stop for this hour. Here we go. A person becomes righteous in the sight of God solely by faith. Does everyone hear that? How do I become righteous before God? Everyone say, by faith alone. Thank you. Add that word, alone, right? By faith alone. By faith alone. How do I become righteous before God? By faith alone. So if you see me doing A, B, C, D, E the wrong way, right? What can you not do to me? You can't call my salvation into effect. Why? Because I'm righteous by faith. The minute you judge my salvation based off my obedience, what have you done? You've destroyed the gospel. Yes? You've destroyed the gospel. Everyone has to understand this. This is so important, all right? All right. The law cannot make any person righteous because it is not a word to say about justifying and saving faith. The information is found only in the gospel. The law has nothing to do about grace. I want to make sure it's very important. The law cannot make you what? Righteous. The law cannot make you righteous. The law cannot make you righteous. And how do we judge people's righteousness as Christians? We do it all the time. We judge them by their action. And you can't judge them by their action because their action does not prove what? Their salvation, and why not? Because we are saved by faith, by a righteousness that's imputed. 
Can I see your can I see imputed righteousness? No, I cannot. Make it very clear. Can I see your imputed righteousness? I cannot. I can look to Christ's righteousness. And if you put your faith in him, then how am I to see you? Not based on what you do, but based on what he did. So therefore, how am I to view every Christian? I am to see other Christians as a new creature in Christ. The old is gone and everything is new. That is not true practically. That is true positionally because they are declared righteous by faith. Do you see how, like, that goes against everything that we think is fair, yes? That, that, you, you know this, do you know this would have happened in school, right? You think what, whatever your worst subject is, whatever it was, what is your worst subject? Just someone, what's the worst subject, your worst subject in school? English, okay? Philosophy. What, what else? Science. What? Who said Math. There you go! That's the greatest person in this church! All right, there you go! All right, she's now my favorite, everyone else is garbage, okay? All right, but, but just think how it would be. You come, you are there, and you're like, man, this is, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. I, I can't do this. I keep failing this. This is garbage. And here sits someone over there going, I only make A's. And you're like, you don't do anything! Well, their grade is given to me by faith. You'd be like, what kind of trash is this? This isn't fair. (laughs) Right? Exactly. It isn't fair. And guess what? What is the last thing any Christian should ever want? Is fair. Because if we got what was fair, we would all be dead and we would all be in hell. I don't want fair. But we, there's something in us that wants to make it fair because we somehow think that we can't, but we can't. So it would be like you seeing someone in class who can't do math. They, they clearly bomb every test, but they're the, they have an A. And you're like, why do they have an A? They don't do anything. They're dumb. They can't get anything right. I asked them one plus one. They don't even know that. How have they the highest grade point average in this school? Well, someone does it for them. See, that's the new way we should do school. I'm telling you, we should, we, we should bring theology to all public school systems. Okay, right? I'm going to change education forever for the better. Okay, all right? No, nobody likes my system. <laughs> no, some people would not like the system because they would feel, well, wait a minute, that's not fair to me. And that's kind of how the Pharisees acted, right? Wait, they get in heaven? That's not fair to us. We've been doing what? Keeping the law. And you're like, wait, that tax collector gets in? Hey, don't you know what she is? Don't you know what she's been doing? They, didn't, they couldn't understand it, could they? They were like the A students in school getting all mad that the losers were getting the honor roll. And they were like, wait a minute, we should be on the honor roll. Does that make sense? All right, we'll pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Help us understand the true nature of the law and the true nature of the gospel so that we do not commingle or mess them up. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...